Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. A handout will be going around right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this will be part 5 of our study in 1 Corinthians. This morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 21, we will be looking at the apostles, that's apostles plural, example of humility. The apostles' example of humility. There are people today who claim to be apostles, men claiming to be speaking on behalf of God and possessing authority far above that of any local church leader. You may find them flying around in private jets. But how should we evaluate these claims, these claims to apostleship? What were the marks of the true apostles and how can they be discerned from the false teachers? And moreover, as we think about what these, who these true apostles were, what can we learn from the example of the apostles? What did they model for the early church and what example did they leave for all Christians of all ages? That's going to be what we're looking at today in 1 Corinthians 4, is specifically the apostles' example of humility. And from that, we're going to see four motivations to humility exemplified by the apostles. Four motivations to humility exemplified by the, by the apostles. First is the apostles' status-motivated humility, the apostles' scripture-motivated humility, the apostles' situation-motivated humility, and the apostles' love-motivated humility. Yeah, they do not all start with S. I couldn't find a good fourth one that started with S. So, wanted to be faithful to the text, which means there's no alliteration. Sorry. So I wanted to just preface before we jump into going verse by verse and just ask a question, uh, just as a reminder, we've covered this before here, but I just want to put it before you all again, just a reminder of what is an apostle biblically, the biblical criteria for apostleship. And this is a collection of various texts that I, I would encourage you to become familiar with. And three main criteria for an apostle, chosen directly by the Lord Jesus, chosen directly by the Lord Jesus. Mark 3.14 is a great example of that. Also, they were able to perform the signs of an apostle, able to perform the signs of an apostle, being authenticated by miraculous signs, wonders, and mighty works. Acts is a, really the whole book, but um, Acts especially 2.43 is a great place to turn for that. And then third, with their own eyes, they were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. These three criteria eliminate anything today for those claiming to be apostles. They were not directly appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. They, did not, they do not have the authenticating signs and wonders that the apostles had in the New Testament. And they were not, with their own eyes, witnesses to the resurrected Christ. So that's just by way of preface as we talk about what an apostle is from this passage, what the apostles exemplified for us. I wanted to just start by talking about who the apostles were. So, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. I will read these verses from the ESV. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me... 
It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. After Paul had flipped the script, we looked last week in, in 3, 21 through 23 and discouraged the, Christ, the uh, Corinthians from blind allegiance to any particular human figure, he then commences a, a rather roundabout defense of the office of apostleship. He's, he's gone out of his way to say, don't just say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow so-and-so, but yet he is going to make a roundabout defense and, and say, who, who were these apostles and why should you actually listen to what we are saying, what they are saying? Who were they, what was their purpose, and what was their status? And that's what this, these first five verses are really getting at, their status. Verse 1 tells us they were servants and they were stewards. What is a steward? Does anyone know what a steward is? Throw it out. Yes. Great definition. Does anyone else want to add anything on to that definition of stewardship? Yeah. Uh, narrowing it a little bit, it was generally in reference in that day to a, a household man manager, someone that was, yes, managing possessions, but specifically managing a household. But it did have, today, the, the connotation is for anything that you're holding on to that someone else has entrusted to you to use for a purpose, too. It's not just, hey, keep this safe for me. But use this for something. Let it accomplish something. In a sense, I mean, y'all have been to our house. I even say that, but we're really stewarding the house that my wife and I live in. Our landlord and good friend, Scott, is a missionary over in Uganda. And he's let us live in his house and use his house and really steward his house for ministry purposes. And it's been a huge blessing of course, we're, we are renting from him, but it's still in a sense of stewardship. We don't just do whatever we want to the house. We don't tear it up and say, oops, sorry. No, we, we want to use it in a way that's really honoring to the person that we're stewarding it for. So in a similar way with the apostles, what they were stewards of, note in verse 4, what are they stewards of? Stewards of the mysteries of God. Rather than being men with intrinsic authority, the apostles possessed delegated authority over a specific domain like a steward who possessed authority over the domain which a housemaster had entrusted to him. Their stewardship was specifically over the mysteries of God. What is meant by the mysteries of God? These are those things that were not previously known. Their authority was directly attached to the message with which they were entrusted, the message with which they were entrusted. Mysteries in the New Testament are those aspects of God's revelation, things that God revealed, which were not previously known. The mysteries of God, these are the realities which make the gospel good news. It's what makes it new. It's what makes it something that needs to be proclaimed afresh and communicated as news because these were mysteries not previously known. So they were stewards of these mysteries. God had entrusted revelation to them that they were to communicate to the world. 
And what is expected of a steward? Verse 2, moreover, it is required, not just expected, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. A steward's objective is not self-motivated, it's not self-exalting, it's not self-gratifying. A steward is laser-focused on faithfulness to the task given to him. And in light of that, if that's what they're charged with, that's what they're expected to do, that's what they're required to do, what is going to be the evaluation of their accomplishment of that task? Verse 3 and 5, their evaluation, their judgment. How How is the steward going to be judged? Because the priority is on pleasing the master of the house, the steward is able to weather any criticism and judgment from anyone else because he knows that ultimately he only needs to give account to one person, the steward of the house, the person that entrusted the thing to him. In the case of the apostles, God who entrusted the mysteries of the gospel to them. Interestingly and freeingly, even self-judgment, even self-criticism lose their punch for the steward. Even though Paul's conscience is clear, he says that in verse 3, the second part of it, um, he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. He's saying, I'm not even doing really like a self-criticism in this, in this matter, but even if I was, so what? That's not what ultimately frees me from blame here. I give account to one person, the one who entrusted these things to me. Paul recognizes that his acquittal comes from having a right heart before God because it's going to be the heart purposes that are going to be revealed. That's what's going to be revealed in the last day. In verse 5, recalling the previous chapter, verses 10 through 15, we won't read through that, but in in 4, verse 5, he says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Paul again makes reference to that judgment seat of Christ that we talked about last week, the time when the Lord will come, And the Lord will judge the heart purposes of believers and distribute commendation in accordance with faithfulness. Paul rests his ministry efforts comfortably in the fact that it is Christ who will evaluate his ministry and his efforts and his motives in ministry. And it's not the factious Corinthian church that's deciding whether or not he's a successful apostle. It's not up to them to decide whether or not he's a successful apostle. He doesn't have to give an account to them. So what are some applications from this section alone? One, the apostles were the initial stewards of the mysteries of God. I want to emphasize the distinction between the apostles and us. They were the ones initially entrusted with the mysteries of God. But now that we possess these mysteries in God's scriptures, this is where they recorded the mysteries of God, we too are stewards entrusted with the message of the gospel. We too are stewards entrusted with the message of the gospel. Now the world has various definitions for success. There are a lot of definitions for success in the world, but biblically, success as believers is defined by faithfulness. God cares about the purposes of our heart, not just the actions of our hands. We're in a world that demands results while serving a God who is pleased with faithful dependence. I want to read a section from this book. I I highly recommend it. The Letters of John Newton. Who knows who John Newton is, was? Russ knows. John Newton. Who knows the song Amazing Grace? 
Yeah. He wrote Amazing Grace. This, uh, this book is a, a collection of letters, and in one of the letters in particular, he wrote to a, a fellow minister, and John Newton, after writing Amazing Grace, he was, used to be a slave trader, and the Lord miraculously, truly miraculously rest, rescued him out of his sin, brought him to a knowledge of the gospel, a knowledge of his, his own need for a Savior, and used him mightily. And one of the biggest ways that God used him in the 1700s, late 1700s, was through his letters. It's, not many people know it, but the, the sorts of people that he was encouraging through the letters that he wrote was remarkable. But in this section, to Reverend Joshua Simmons, he writes, and where we read Mr. Whitfield here, th- picture whatever like, the most famous preacher of today is, or like a Billy Graham type person. That's who this was in the day. One man, like Mr. Whitfield, is raised up to preach the gospel with success through a considerable part of the earth. Another man is called to the humbler service of sweeping the streets or cleaning that great minister's shoes. Now, if the latter, the one that's cleaning that guy's shoes, if the latter is thankful and content in his poor station, if he can look without envy, yea, with much love on the man that is honored, if he can rejoice in the good that is done, or pray for the success of those whom the Lord sends. I see not why he may not be as great a man in the sight of God as he who is followed and admired by thousands. Upon a supposition of degrees of glory, I should think it probable the best Christian will have the highest place. So he makes makes an assumption, assuming the best Christian is going to have the highest place, And I'm inclined to think that if you and I were to travel in search of the best Christian in the land, picture this, you're going to go look across all of America and try to find the best Christian. And assuming that we were qualified to distinguish who deserved the title, so assuming we actually could accurately determine who the best Christian was, it is more than two to one we should not find the person in a pulpit or any public office of life perhaps some old woman at her wheel, or some bedridden person hid from the knowledge of the world in a mud-walled cottage would strike our attention more than any of the doctors or reverends with whom we are acquainted. Let us not measure men, much less ourselves, by gifts or services. One grain of grace is worth abundance of gifts." To be self-abased, to be filled with a spirit of love and peace and gentleness, to be dead to the world, to have the heart deeply affected with a sense of the glory and grace of Jesus, to have our will bowed to the will of God, these are the great things, more valuable if compared in the balance of the sanctuary, than to be an instrument of converting a province or a nation." I just love that picture of where are you going to find the best Christian? Well, because it's heart purposes that will be revealed. Look at verse 5 again, chapter 4. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Because it's heart purposes that God looks at and not the externals, the quote-unquote best Christian is likely not found where we would expect to find him. Some questions to reflect on. Describe your understanding of stewardship. Why is this 
a fitting description for us as believers who've been called to share the message of salvation with others? And then also, what are some roadblocks to faithful stewardship? I want you to think about that at tables. What gets in the way and distracts us from faithfully stewarding the message of the gospel? And then lastly, do you judge your success by faithfulness to God or by the results of what you see happening in your life? Why is it so important to prioritize having our hearts right before the Lord and having actions of obedience flow from an inner life that is devoted to him? Take a few minutes, maybe five minutes or so, think through these questions, talk through them at tables, and we'll, we'll come back together and just talk about this a little bit further and then move into verse six. So go ahead and talk about that for about five minutes. Rolling into verse six and seven, Another example, how the apostles exemplified humility, is the apostles' scripture-motivated humility. Verses 6 and 7, Paul continues, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what does it mean, verse 6, not going beyond what is written? Paul has already quoted at this point in the letter five Old Testament scripture passages when he gets to this point. A quote from the exegetical summary series reads, Paul probably had in mind that they not go beyond the scriptures he had cited in chapters 1 and 3 particularly that they not boast in men and that they not be deceived by, quote-unquote, the wise. A major theme in this letter is the priority of humility, particularly as it works against sinful division and other sinful actions. And that's specifically what Paul has been addressing through referencing the Old Testament. And he says, we've applied this to ourselves. For your benefit, don't go beyond what's written. Scripture says, don't be puffed up. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let the one who boasts boast in this, that he knows the Lord. That's not going beyond what is written. And they, in doing that, in referencing the Old Testament that, that Paul's been referencing throughout, they also model for us, the, the apostles as a whole model for us, that they were not men above Scripture nor should we be. I mean, they, they applied those things to themselves. We need to be constantly putting ourselves under the Scriptures. In the end of that little section in verse 7, Paul rattles off a couple questions questioning the Corinthian pride. He says, why, who put you in a different category than us? Paul had applied the various antidotes to prideful division to his own heart, so why should the Corinthians be in some sort of special category where all the things that Paul applied to himself somehow doesn't apply to them. Who made you to differ? They seem to be thinking that it is actually their own ability or their own specialness that brought about their situations and status. And we'll read later in verses, in later chapters of this book, it'll probably be March before we get to it, but we'll, we'll see that the Corinthian church was a church exceptionally gifted. They'd received an abundance of spiritual gifts, but that had produced in them pride. So they seem to be thinking that it's somehow their own ability or specialness that brought them into their situation 
and status, and they fail to recognize and realize that all that they have is a gift from God. All that they have is a gift from God. What do you have that you did not receive? How can you boast for something that is not yours but was simply given to you? All these questions are designed to further flatten the Corinthian pride and division. Paul demonstrated a yieldedness to Scripture producing an unwillingness to boast. This should characterize our own conduct as well. We should be always checking our actions and attitudes with God's word and regularly bringing our hearts into conformity to what God says in the Bible. Another example that we see from the apostles is the apostles' situation-motivated humility. So we saw their status-motivated humility. They were stewards. But what about their situation? Read with me in verses 8 through 13 and note the tone because that is incredibly important to pick up on this passage because he's using, he's using irony, really. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That is a sarcastic contrast. You start out with the exaltation of the conceited. They're just, they're, they're up here, we're reigning, we're kings, we're wise, we got it figured out. And Paul says, contrast that with realities. The Corinthians are like those in Laodicea at the time of John writing Revelation. Brother Russ covered this recently. Re- Revelation 3.17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The Corinthians were acting as though they had it already all figured out and as though the millennial reign was already happening, as if they were already reigning. In contrast, the apostles regarded the victorious and triumphant aspects of the faith as future. They recognized that now is the time of take up your cross and follow your crucified and risen Savior. Then is the day of reigning with him forever. The Corinthians had this beyond flip-flopped. Just noting a few different other specifics here, the apostles, their lowliness is seen in verse 9. Their despised condition is seen in verse 11. In verses 12 and 13, the apostles' selflessness. They were working hard so that others were not burdened by their ministry. They were blessing when they were reviled, They were enduring when they were persecuted. They were entreating when they were slandered. And they were rejected. Look at 13b, the end of that verse. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. These are 
the men that are supposed to be our examples. This is not our typical thought of what the Christian life is going to be like. This is not certainly what those today that claim to be apostles are enduring. This is a world different than what we expect. John Flavel writes, To see such a man as Paul going up and down the world with a naked back and empty belly and not a house to put his head on, one who was so far above thee in grace and holiness, one that did more service for God in a day than perhaps thou hast done in all thy days, and yet thou repine as if hardly dealt with? Really? How are we going to complain about our trials when, first off, Christ endured sufferings unimaginable, and then those closest associates of our Lord and Savior endured these hardships? How, how do we whine at something so much smaller? So as we apply these to ourselves, in your mind, what is the ideal Christian life like? What do you picture when you picture the ideal Christian life? When you think about discipleship, the call to follow Jesus as a disciple, what comes to mind? Somehow we have in mind that our end of the deal is to come to Christ, and then God's end of the deal is to make sure our life is not hard. If the apostles endured such affliction, why would we expect our walks with the Lord to be easy and smooth sailing? Why would we expect discipleship without cost? A couple questions to reflect on. How does Paul use sarcasm to highlight the foolishness and arrogance of the Corinthians' unteachability? That was something I hope some of you were able to think about over the week. And then, when you think about the afflictions and despised status of the apostles, how does that confront preconceptions about what the Christian life is, quote-unquote, supposed to look like? And just remember those questions. We'll loop back to them at the end. This last section, the apostles love motivated humility. Love motivated humility. Verses 14 through the end of the chapter. He's just said some pretty stinging things to the Corinthians. Some things that, as they're reading, like, ouch, Paul, ouch. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though as I am not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness. Paul had brought a hard word to them, but he had done so from the stance of love, longing to see the Christians grow in maturity and grow in grace. It is a fatherly correction to his beloved children. There are two responses to correction or conviction. We can either be ashamed, we can either be ashamed, that's the first when we recognize in our own hearts conviction over sin or when someone comes to us and brings a correction 
and then we feel that conviction, we can either be ashamed. The first, that is that Satan would love to have us wallow in shame and guilt. That is how Satan would like you to respond to conviction as a believer. Shame and guilt make us want to hide from God and is more related to the emotions of being embarrassed by a sin than it is to a genuine heart conviction of a need to change. So we can either be ashamed or we can be admonished. Admonished. And that's not a word we use often today. But when we are convicted by sin, we should recognize God's purpose of admonishment. This is the idea of an instruction. It's the Greek word nutheteo, to admonish, to counsel about the avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. It's, it's counseling, but it's specifically counseling someone away from something. I'm saying these things not just so you're going to sit and wallow in shame and guilt, but so that you're actually going to do something about this. That that sense of guilt would drive you to the cross, that you'd recognize the gospel afresh, and that you would repent and walk in newness of life. To admonish here is to warn and to instruct. And I listed a few verses here because I think it's helpful to see the way the New Testament uses this word and realize that this is a command given to believers and something that you should regularly be participating in with your fellow believers and receiving from fellow believers. If you can't remember the last time you were admonished, you might not be in close enough proximity for anyone to even see into your life and speak into your situation. If you've not been admonished, it's not because you're perfect. I'll just say that. Acts 20, 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Romans 14, 15, 14. Speaking to the church. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct. That is to admonish one another. Colossians 1.28, the means of producing maturity. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, that is admonishing, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, admonishment given as a spiritual task for all believers. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and those who admonish you. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idle. So a specific type of person that needs to be admonished. The idle, the person that's just not moving spiritually. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And then lastly, 2 Thessalonians 3.15, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him, admonish him as a brother. These verses highlight the responsibility to counsel that every believer has to one another. You should not be able to gather with the church without seeing a counselor. Think of it that way. If you are situated in a Christian community, then you should be talking to a counselor every week. In the biblical sense of nutheteo, counselors, we are to be to one another counselors. Paul's aim was to counsel and correct the Corinthians, not drive them to shame and sorrow. His aim was correction. And then we also see in verse 15, Paul's unique heart for the Corinthians. The place that really the Corinthians 
had in his heart. Many people had helped the Corinthians spiritually, but it was Paul who planted and fathered, quote-unquote, the believers in Corinth. He was there at the early days in their walk with the Lord. Paul loved them. Corinth was a mess, but the letter was not Paul complaining. It was not Paul trying to just say, man, you Corinthians, you're making life so hard for me. Could you just get it together? No, it's he loves them. He cares for them. He's, he's poured years into them. He was there in Corinth for 18 months, keeping up correspondence after that, sending one of his best ministry protégés to care for that church, Timothy. He cares for them deeply. This letter was Paul lovingly caring for a hurting congregation that had a dear place in his heart. But then he calls them to imitation. Verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. Paul pleads with the Corinthians to follow his example. Now, Timothy is being sent to remind them, or had been sent to remind them of the way Paul lived. So, obviously, Timothy was following Paul's example. And later in the same letter, in chapter 11, Paul's going to write, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And it's so cool to see the interplay between Paul and Timothy and Paul sending Timothy to remind the Corinthians of who Paul was because later in Paul's likely last letter before he was killed, in 2 Timothy, written to the same Timothy sent to Corinth, he says in 2 Timothy 2, 2.2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this pattern of imitation, passing it on to someone that's going to be able to pass it on to someone else, really disciple-making, was fundamental to Paul's ministry, and it should be to ours as well. And then lastly, Paul's warning in verse 18 through 21. We won't go in depth on it, but Paul makes clear that those who are arrogantly opposing the truth will be confronted for their falsehood and for their division. But he pleads with them to repent before he even gets there so it can be a joyous reunion when he gets there at Corinth, not all right, I'm here in Corinth, and I have to respond to the exact same things that I just wrote a 16-chapter letter about. His plea is that they would be responsive to the word of the Lord and put their lives in conformity to God's authority. He pleads for repentance and humility prior to his arrival so that that time together can be maximized and pleasant. So in conclusion, Paul demonstrates the sorts of things that motivated humility in his own heart and in the hearts of the apostles as a whole. He explains how the apostles possessed a status-motivated humility as stewards, a scripture-motivated humility, responsive to what God's word says about pride and boasting and humility, a situation-motivated humility that arises from realizing the just despised condition that the apostles were in, and then a love-motivated humility. He then exhorts the believers in Corinth to imitate him. The example of Paul and the apostles as a whole drive us to ask ourselves some reflecting questions. How does your status, how does your identity as a believer with a purpose given by God and results evaluated by God impact your daily life and produce humility? How does that status change the way you live? How do you read God's word? When you read God's word, does it each day erode arrogance and produce a greater and greater sense of your own unworthiness before the Lord? How does a general consideration of the lowliness 
and poor treatment of the quote-unquote best of Christians, both those throughout history and around the world today, how does that reorient your perspective on the Christian life? And then how does deep care for your fellow brothers and sisters produce a greater awareness of the needs of others and a diminished fixation on your own feelings and your own quote-unquote needs? The apostles exemplified a life of Christ-dependent lowliness that God intended for us to imitate. The question is, are you growing in humility? You're either growing in humility or you're growing in pride. There's not, there's not really an either, either or there. There's not uh, just a stationary place spiritually. You're either growing in humility or you're growing in pride. The apostles demonstrated humility. A couple of discussion questions to close with, talk through at tables. You can loop back to those two we talked about earlier. And then lastly, just close. Reflect on a time when a brother or sister in Christ lovingly corrected or confronted you. How did you respond? Were you defensive and ashamed? Or were you, respect, um, sorry, were you receptive and admonished or instructed? What, what did your experience of that teach you about how you can lovingly admonish others? And then what is one takeaway from today's lesson that has been personally challenging for you? And what is one key point of application that you can implement this week? So loop back on those two questions. I'll just close this in prayer, and then you can talk about those at tables and, and head out when you, when you finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example of the apostles so clear as they were despised and hated, yet they were faithful stewards as they saw a huge variety of what the world might call success, sometimes things quote-unquote worked, sometimes they didn't, yet they were faithful to you, and that's what they'll receive their commendation for. We ask that you would help us to be the same, to be love-motivated, scripture-responsive, joy-filled disciples following you each day of our lives. We ask that you'd bless the discussion now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.